This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Thank you for being here today and I would like to acknowledge uh, the Gunnawal elders uh, who were the traditional owners of this land and thank them for uh, looking after this land. Uh, we are about to have a whirlwind session of lightning talks. This is fast paced. There are nine people each presenting a five minute presentation within a 90 minute period. So there will be a few minutes for questions and answers between each presentation. I'm Joe Gross from NPS, your facilitator for this session, and I will introduce each of the speakers as they come up. Um, I will be keeping every speaker to time. For those of you that haven't had a chance to see at the lectern, there is a little light here. I will make it light up green when you are four minutes into your speech, and I will turn it red when you hit the five minute mark so you know that you need to wrap up. I'll also facilitate some uh, roving questions, and I have Eve in here who may help with the roving mic if we need that during the questions and answers. If time is running short, I will reserve further questions so you can speak with the speaker at the end of the session after we've got all through nine speakers. I want to make sure that Jared gets the same right to his five minute lightning talk as everybody else. Are there any questions? Otherwise, I would like to introduce our first speaker, Anya Heaney, from a pharmacist from NPS Medicine Wise. Thank you, Anya. Thanks everyone. Um, I'm Irish, so I speak really fast, and I was told I had seven minutes, so strap yourselves in. <laughs> so, so I'm here to talk about um, a new initiative, um, which uh, is funded out of the Office of Health Protection. It's a partnership endeavor um, done with NPS Medicine Wise and the National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance. I unfortunately don't have their logo up on the slides today, but I would like to acknowledge their input because they're launching their new logo on Monday and it's top secret. But this is the team. Um, and so again, yeah, we work really, really well together. So for those of you who don't know, immunization has been one of the most significant public health interventions in the last 200 years. Um, it's like, since the introduction of vaccines in Australia in 1932, deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases have actually dropped by 99%, despite a threefold increase in our population. It's really critical for the health of children and the wider community. But in order to work, sufficient numbers of people have to be vaccinated to prevent the spread of bacteria and viruses. And this is known as herd immunity, which is an interesting concept. In Australia, we do pretty well. Um, we managed to get, oh, sorry, feedback. Um, we managed to get um, generally above the 90% for childhood coverage rates in most cases around um, Australia. However, for really contagious diseases like measles, that needs to be much more like 95%. Um, and so when PHNs were first established back in um, 2016, their key objective was to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of all medical services for their community. But one of the unintended consequences that was starting to play out was that you had 31 insular-looking commissioning bodies who were tasked with looking at the population needs for their local population. And if a CEO from a PHN found that his vaccination rates were actually pretty good, then he would deprioritize that and mobilize his resources to another you know, more pressing need, be it mental health or um, diabetes. But one of the interesting things about immunization is if you take your foot off the gas and vaccination rates start to fall, you cannot put that toothpaste back in the tube. So we would start to see the re-emergence of vaccine-preventable diseases, and we've seen that with some measles outbreaks around the country and other things. So 
Also, thinking about PHNs as individual entities, they are very, very different, as they were wont to be. So they're very tailored to what their local community needs. But again, when it comes to immunization, that means that there's huge variation in the way that they're supporting their providers. Oftentimes, there are not dedicated immunization staff in the way that there were in the past. And oftentimes, it might be one of very many portfolios that the PHN staff are asked to look after. So they might need to look after child and maternal health. So, and that's difficult because immunization is really complex, and it's a very dynamic and shifting landscape. So oftentimes, we know that there's a huge range of stakeholders different types of providers, different ways the jurisdictions have implemented their, their vaccine programs, and oftentimes vaccinations given in settings outside of health. It might be given by councils, might be given in schools, might be given in workplaces. So that's a really complex kind of a landscape to keep yourself across. I'm told also that the number of changes to the immunization schedule that are currently occurring are unprecedented. There's lots of new vaccines coming, there's lots of changes to the vaccination schedule, and again, each of the states and territories are implementing that in different ways. So that's a lot to keep across. We also have a whole of life register in Australia, which is very um, innovative. We're one of the very few countries that has that. But there's a change management piece to work through to make sure that people know what to do and how to get data transferred and so that we get the best out of that register. Increasingly, while we're doing okay for childhood vaccines, we're not actually doing all that great in the adult vaccination space. So there's a large piece of work to do. You're probably hearing a lot about flu vaccines in the environment at the minute, but pneumococcal shingles, there's lots going on there. And indeed, it is a very high profile sort of media and government policy. So again, PHNs were telling us that they feel like they're drinking from a hose pipe and they just don't know how to keep across it all. So hence we were established. So the Office of Health Protection recognized that this was a dire need and that there needed to be better coordination and support for PHNs in order for them to be able to support their providers. So we got the gig in July last year, as I said, with the National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance. And for a period of time, all we did was listen. We said, what would better look like? What would help you do your job? What would help you, know, you support your providers in a better way? And essentially what they told us, there were a lot of common themes throughout the consultation. People felt very isolated, and that was at all level. PHN staff felt isolated. Um, people in public health units felt isolated. People in the jurisdictions felt isolated. They didn't feel very connected. There was not this cohesion and collaboration that there probably had been in the past in, in certain divisions of general practice and in the Medicare locals. So it was that idea of connectedness and having to build a community of practice was very loudly what we heard that the, the PHNs wanted. So we established four core elements um, to, in order to enable that. So we have built an online digital platform, um, which is a very safe, locked down ecosystem in which these people can come together and share and collaborate and ask dumb questions and run hard and break things. Um, they wanted best of breed resources and tools. So they wanted a one-stop shop that they could go to to find what are the things around call chain or the register or whatever to prevent duplication because there was a plethora of material out there but not all of it well curated and indeed not all of it you know, necessarily of the high caliber and evidence base that we would like. So we performed that curation function. They wanted education and networking opportunities, both digitally, webinars, teleconferences. They wanted ways to be able to connect with one another, but they wanted face-to-face -to -face too. But most of all, what they wanted was central coordination. They wanted someone on the end of a phone, someone they could know and they could trust. So Bob in New South Wales might not know Sally in Western Australia, but they both knew Anya in Sydney, so they knew they could contact me and I could connect them. 
The digital portal is key. As I said, it is a closed community. It's a kind of like a, a closed Facebook page, if you like. There's a lot of sharing and collaboration that happens on it. There's a lot of discussion forums. But it has lots of tools and um, really interesting stuff like the latest and greatest news. It's got an amazing library full of resources. It's got event calendars. Um, and it's got all of the contacts for all of the key stakeholders. And it's got their little picture. And it's got a little bio about what they do in their free time. And it really humanizes the whole sort of system. Um, and so it's relatively new. We only built it in April. So it's maturing and it's um, coming to fruition now. Um, but yeah, we have 200 regular users. And as I said, they're really getting on much better than they were. And I hope at the National Medicine Sym um, Symposium, I'll come back and tell you how successful it was. Thank you. Our next speaker, of course, is going to be Jessica Case, uh, a <coughs> pharmacist and PhD student at the University of Sydney. Um, so good morning, everyone. I'm here to talk about part of my PhD study, which is on physician perspectives on post-market data collection and market withdrawal and disinvestment as parts of accelerated access. Um, and when I'm talking about accelerated access here, I'm talking about mainly conditional approval and reimbursement mechanisms. And these are two examples in Australia. Um, and these allow medicines to come onto the market or be reimbursed um, more quickly, despite some, some uncertainty, on the condition that further data is collected once they enter, to enter the market to resolve any uncertainty surrounding their um, cost effectiveness, efficacy or safety. And such schemes have a significant impact on prescribers. Um, and this is because the risk-benefit balance of the medicines that they prescribe are being increasingly determined by this post-market data collection. And also um, withdrawal and disinvestment can change the therapies available to their patients. So with that in mind, we conducted a qualitative study in which we sought to explore the beliefs and values of Australian physicians with regard to this post-market data collection um, and regulatory withdrawal and disinvestment, disinvestment sorry, as components of accelerated access. So all up, we've conducted 18 semi-structured interviews with Australian physicians. Um, each interview lasted for between 30 and 75 minutes, and these were transcribed and thematically analysed. So our physicians identified a number of potential opportunities that this approach offers. So the most significant one was that it would allow patients access to, to what they saw as um, potentially life-saving medicines much earlier in the development pipeline. And this was seen to be particularly important for, in areas such as rare diseases um, and also um, in areas such as cancer where there's an increasing subdivision of disease. And existing processes were seen to not really meet the needs of patients in these areas. Um, they also emphasised the opportunity to gather for increased data availability on use of these medicines in real-world patients as opposed to the controlled settings of clinical trials. Um, and finally, they thought that this approach could save the healthcare system money. So they, um, they emphasised that increased data availability on the use of these medicines would allow for the identification of patients in which their use is most effective and most cost effective. And then regulators and payers could then limit the use of these medicines to those patients. Um, and this would help to promote quality use of medicine and save the healthcare system money. Um, so our participants did identify some potential challenges with this approach, and these are shown on this slide here. However, they also suggested a number of strategies that they thought were sufficient to overcome any risks that this approach offers. So firstly, they wanted to see strong, strong contracts between manufacturers and the government, and this would touch on areas such as any timelines for the collection and analysis of um, that post-market data collection, any financial responsibilities of parties, and also any penalties for not meeting those timelines or complying with those financial responsibilities. Sorry. Um, so linked with this, physicians also wanted to see swift action by regulators and payers if these commitments were not met or if medicines proved to be less um, safe or clinically or cost effective than was first thought. 
And this was usual swift, um, swift withdrawal from the market or swift disinvestment um, by the federal government and the PBS. They also wanted to see clear procedures for patients who were responding to therapies that were subsequently removed from the market or that were no longer available on the PBS. And this was usually that the pharmaceutical company would continue to provide the medicine to that patient for as long as the patient required it. Um, and that was usually at no cost or at little cost to the patient. They also wanted to see data collection and analysis kept at arm's length from industry. And this was because industry was seen to have a vested interest in this data. Some physicians also thought that government had a vested interest in this data and that they should take as much of a hands-off approach as possible. Um, in, instead, our participants thought that data collection and analysis should be treated like a clinical trial, and they suggested that it was most appropriate that this was managed by independent academic centres or by um, medical groups. Um, participants also suggested that this approach would require extra resources in order to implement successfully, but there was some debate as to who should provide this. So, so um, many physicians suggested that it was appropriate for industry to put this money to provide these resources, as they, they would have their products on the market earlier and they would be um, able to recoup their research and development costs on these earlier. Others thought that um, government should also make a contribution, um, and this was um, due to the opportunity of this approach to um, help to use medicines in a more cost-effective manner and therefore save the government money. And a number of participants thought that a combination of the two would be appropriate. Um, so this then raises the, the question, are these strategies achievable and realistic? Um, and a number of jurisdictions overseas have already introduced these conditional approval and reimbursement strategies, and their experience is useful in determining how this policy is implemented in Australia. So this is a recent report from the US Government Accountability Office, and it was looking at the FDA's accelerated approval pathway, and this is similar to the TGA's provision, recently introduced provisional approval pathway. And this report found that um, less than half of the studies that the FDA had required to be completed as a condition of registration of a medicine had been completed um, by the timeframe that was agreed with the manufacturer when the medicine came onto the market, but also that the FDA was significantly behind in tracking submitted data, in analysing that data, and in making a decision about whether that or not that medicine should remain on the market. Um, and I'm sure most of you are aware that um, disinvestment and market withdrawal are both time and resource intensive processes, and it's, um, it's quite hard to do this in the time frame that our physicians have suggested. And this paper here just gives an indication of the harm that could result um, if a medicine proves to be unsafe or ineffective and in the time that it's taken to withdraw it from the market. So this, found, this study looked at the rate at which um, drugs that were approved in the United States um, and subsequently recalled how long that took to get them off the market, and they found that these drugs were prescribed more than 100 million times before they were removed from the market. So just to wrap up, these results suggest that there's some possible hype and misunderstandings amongst this stakeholder group um, concerning these pathways, and that we need to be cautious when introducing these pathways, but regarding both stakeholder expectations and about doing away with our existing systems of evidence generation, um, given the uncertainty surrounding these pathways. And we also need to have further engagement with all stakeholder groups to design policies that are both achievable and that address their needs, values, and beliefs in order to um, balance that access safety, concerns such as access, safety, and affordability. Our next speaker today is Lisa Robertson, the formulary pharmacist from SA Pharmacy. Um, first, I'd like to declare I have no conflict of interest. Um, prior to 2013, each South Australian public hospital managed their own formulary. The South Australian Formary Committee was established to develop and maintain a statewide formary with the aims to address the quality of access, cost efficiencies and the quality use of medicines. 
The process undertaken for form re-evaluation was based on criteria in the form re-framework. The initial evaluation um, focused on those of interest to key stakeholders and data that could be readily accessed. The areas were quality use of medicine, equity of access, form suitability and some financial analysis. The formery has had an impact on the quality use of medicines. The evaluation process looked at medicines not included in the formery or restricted for safety reasons. Promethazine injection had been widely used in SA Health um, despite an FDA black box warning. Extensive consultation undertaken identified it was appropriate for a small unniche group within haematology and oncology with the subsequent formerly restriction reflecting this. The evaluation process showed a two-thirds reduction in statewide usage, removal from impressed and protocol updates. However, many decisions were based on quality use of medicines and did not result in savings. Heparin premixed syringes and the strength of droperidol injection were both chosen for medication safety reasons. Alteplase was preferred over urokinase for maintaining patency of central venous catheters as it was licensed, although being used for an unlicensed indication. Phenytoin injection was restricted with the newer anti-epileptics first line as these had less adverse drug reactions, um, interactions and no therapeutic drug monitoring was required. Formary recommendations for the direct oral anticoagulants were based on safety initiatives. Prior to the formary, many patients with poor renal function were being considered for dabigatran. Safety concerns in renal impairment was a rationale for the formary, with a streamlined form requiring prescribers to calculate the renal function. Interesting, our decisions in SA Health um, are quite different from the rest of Australia. Apixaban is a preferred formary agent and most commonly used, from, which is quite different from national figures where Rivoxaban leads. Equity of access was assessed via site implementation surveys. There's been adoption by 95% of the state's public hospital beds, with medication governance being the main barrier. Before the formery, um, tacrolimus extended release was only available at four of our public hospitals and not stopped at the major hospital in SA Health that performed all SA Health liver transplants that also had a sizeable renal transplant population. Formary suitability and ascertaining the needs of SA Health patients are being met has been assessed by reviewing the individual patient use requests at one major site. No significant changes were noted pre and post formary implementation, however further widespread review is under, um, being undertaken currently. Review of expenditure has shown a plateau corresponding to formary implementation and that's the formula implementation is a red line. The predicted expenditure can be seen by the green dashed line with the actual value, the blue line. The initial formula implementation occurred in March 2014 with a small number of groups that were highlighted for significant savings. Two years later, the formula was over 70% complete. When reviewing total expenditure, it was agreed not um, there'd be considerable impact with the new therapy such as Ivacaftor and the new Hep C drugs. However, as these agents are usually prescribed in the outpatient setting and are fully reimbursed in PBS, there would be little impact on the state health budget. Financial evaluation was prioritised for those medicines with significant statewide um, post-implementation. Annual expenditure and usage was analysed at least one year pre and one year post-implementation. The identified medicines have shown a reduction in expenditure with annual savings in excess of $7 million, with the biosimilar medicines contributing $4.7 million of savings.
Evaluation of the 5-HT3 antagonists provide a confirmation of formary concordance with only those recommended medicines showing use post-implementation. There was also savings in excess of $300,000. However, not all medicines resulted in savings, with Sugevamex showing an additional expenditure of approximately $200,000. This was far in excess of the predicted. Further ongoing evaluation and audit is being undertaken. In conclusion, the initial evaluation indicates establishment of the formery has promoted the safe and quality use of medicines, enabled equity of access and improved cost effectiveness. Resource limitations have restricted evaluation processes to date, although ongoing evaluation is planned. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker today is Mei Wong. Uh, I had the pleasure of speak, seeing speak yesterday at Choosing Wisely. I'm uh, here from Royal North Shore, and you have a research affiliation, I believe. I will let you introduce that yourself. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be sharing you the results from uh, my master's, which I completed at the University of Sydney with Professor Timothy Chen, Associate Professor Rebecca Moles, and Dr. Betty Cha. Uh, so we, wanted, we thought that, well, consumers, they like choice. But we've seen in the past few years that persistent drug shortages have limited this choice. And it really hit home back in 2011, if you all remember, we couldn't get morphine, we couldn't get benzyl penicillin. We still have ongoing issues with things like adrenaline or epinephrine. So it really highlighted that access to essential medicines is not just a developing country issue, it's actually a global issue, and it's a global supply chain. So existing supply chains have vulnerabilities, like all supply chains, but this impacts our health systems. It incurs very high costs, millions of dollars, and the risks consumer safety. For example, when life-saving medicines aren't available, then you know, we have risks to patients. People can have alternative treatments, or they can uh, you know, have disjointed chemotherapy. So the supply chain needs to be addressed, and it's very complex with multiple stakeholders. Uh, so further understanding is required um, to see how different elements of the supply chain um, interact and impact access to medicines. So that we wanted to look at how we can highlight the management strategies to protect and reinforce our supply. So uh, our aim of the study was to examine how different stakeholders' roles facilitate access essential medicines. This is part of a larger body of work, which we've published in peer-reviewed journals, and the final one be just a process of sub uh, submission. But we did a qualitative study uh, with a lot of our key decision makers. We have in-depth, semi-structured interviews uh, with 47 participants. And that when we say decision makers, we mean the people uh, making decisions, senior management, experts in the field. We wanted to see what are the big issues and what are the changes that these managers of a supply chain are doing. Uh, we spent about an hour. It was a lot, of, uh, it was a lot we had to go through. And we uh, analyzed it thematically. Uh, in addition to the mathematic analysis, we also thought about how do we approach it from a management point of view? And there's a lot of control mechanisms that we put in, and sometimes our control mechanisms actually cause a lot of complexities. Because in the comprehensive theory of collaboration, it believes that the more communication and collaboration we have, the more management that requires and coordination. It gets more complex because of that. So for example, here's the Ishigawa um, fishbone diagram showing the key stakeholders. We had seven, and one of the, uh, and on the left-hand side for each stakeholder shows some of the control mechanisms we have in place and those special roles that each person has, but also on the right-hand side of that fishbone is some of the challenges and the complexities we interact with. 
Uh, one really important result that came out was the decision-making around selection of medicines was separate from the logistics management of medicines, the provision of medicines, which makes sense. This is avoiding conflict of interest. However, that makes the fragmentation very difficult to coordinate and communicate. So this is really interesting for us to highlight. Uh, as you'll see, uh, I'll give you an example of how we applied this, uh, th the themes. So governments have a very strong role in regulatory and leadership roles. However, what it comes to payments and contracts, this can be very tricky sometimes. Uh, and you know, it's already, I think though some of you know that that can be difficult here. Imagine in a developing country where you have a lot of diff different issues as well with transparency. And also having contingency planning and resilience planning is really important in a system. However, it's hard to have an umbrella plan uh, when there's so many people involved. Um, we also have academics or experts who are great at training and accessing and identifying issues. Um, but you know, have sharing that information can be difficult and we have very limited timelines and it's always uh, you know turning over our nonprofit organizations were really great at having community support uh, but again they you know they had their own challenges sometimes uh, there were duplication of tasks and some communication and our consumer groups were great advocates for our patients and they really determine our needs but what we saw was there was such a wide range of needs that this was difficult to sustain in the supply chain because that means shelf space the what-if scenarios and that was really difficult one really important uh, thing I want to highlight is our health care providers now you'll notice that our health care providers in the logistics and in the decision-making process overlaps particularly the pharmacists. So Lisa's work is really great to hear because that's complementary. What we found in our study was that pharmacists set priorities, they're involved in the decision making, but they also are part of the, continu the, the continuity of the supply about forecasting and planning and quantification. But that quantification is really tricky because that's so hard, it changes sometimes by season. Right? Sometimes it's the flu season and we're going to have different stocks at different times of the year. Also, there's distribution issues as well. Um, if you are in Northern Hemisphere, sometimes it's snowing and people can't get to it. Sometimes there's a volcano. So the supply chain you know, is very fickle and it's subject to like any other business. The manufacturers have to supply us you know, safe, good quality medicines um, that need to be uh, sustained in the system. But they are subject to like any other business. Sometimes there's unpredictable um, circumstances and a very contentious issue, as you may all think and all know, is what's the balance between a cost and pricing of a medicine and the profit a company should be making. What is the margin? And it's really, it's really, you know, two sides, you know, two sides of the story. Uh, we can't, we can't afford to pay for everything, nor can we afford to have everything there just in case. And that's part of the contingency planning and um, uh, uh, resilience planning. Uh, so there it goes. We want to advocate for a hospital formulary pharmacist, an expanded role, because this takes a lot of time to manage, to look through the system, looking for alternatives. What happens here? Where can I get it there? So having a pharmacist actually allocated to this was very helpful in some of the suggestions. Alternatively, wholesalers have a very special role in seeing through the whole supply chain. They see down the pipe. They know what's coming. They know some of the issues. We're changing contracts. They can actually say, well, yeah, that we have this for this amount of time, but we can't help. You can't go with that contract supply because there's going to be like a gap, and you're going to incur more costs because, yes, you saved on the contract, but you don't have the supply, and in the interim, you're going to pay it more out of pocket for a non-contracted a drug. So one of the things that will be very interesting to see that wholesalers don't sit on our currently sit on our uh, selection committees. So that is a, a gap that was kind of identified, and that perhaps you know we're moving towards connection between procurement 
um, and selection. And having wholesalers be part of this discussion may help us fill in some of the gaps. And that's two stakeholder roles to increase communication and increase coordination with the, where there will always be some type of conflict of interest. But in conclusion, we just wanted to highlight that logistics management and therapeutic decision making are separate. And that's appropriate to avoid conflicts of interest. But we can improve our collaboration and coordination in certain areas by communicating this through su supply chain managers such as pharmacists, hospital formulary pharmacists, and also the uh, wholesalers. Um, and you know, some things always in the back of our head is thinking about resilience planning and how reactive we are in a system and, and have that discussion. So thank you very much. The TGA mentioned there was a good segue to our next presenter, Rebecca Doolan, although she's not talking about that section of the TGA. Okay, so reforms to advertising controls of pharmacist-only medicines, um, or Schedule 3 substances as they tend to get known around the place. So following the Medicines Medical Devices Review, which most of you should be aware of, if you're not, um, then we obviously haven't been doing our job very well. Recommendation 12 said we should go out and review the current arrangements for advertising of Schedule 3 substances um, because they're effectively banned from being advertised in Australia and, you know, which wasn't technically correct, but you know it felt like it to a lot of stakeholders. So we have we've done that um, through a lot of consultation, collaboration, discussions, arguments, um, all sorts of things. Um, we have reviewed the current what were the current requirements, well the old requirements, um, with a focus on you know sort of advocating for improved awareness um, of of different medicine options for self care um, for patients and things like that. So we've looked at it and we actually have. Um, we hope, reformed the advertising of these substances. Um, and so there's been a lot of, um, as I said, consultation. I know that Jerry's in here. We had conversations with um, the hospital pharmacists because uh, there was, you know, there was a lot of opposition from some stakeholders that they didn't like this approach. Um, so, you know, we've tried to balance those concerns. And so now what we have effectively is a policy shift, which is substances, Schedule 3 substances can be advertised to consumers unless we can find a reason not to, okay? And that's the critical bit. We need to have that critical um, analysis of that substance to make sure that they're not going to be misused or there's you know, potential danger with that. So how we're going to do that is by using the scheduling delegate. And the reason for it to sit with the scheduling delegate is these substances, to allow them to be legally advertised, they need to be included in Appendix H of the Poison Standard. That's written into the Advertising Code um, and it's also in the jurisdictional legislation because they're the ones that help to enforce all of this. Um, so the delegate will actually make these decisions about is there a reason why I can't, this substance shouldn't be advertised? Um, rather than, you know, is there a reason for this to be advertised? It's like, is there a safety concern? Is there a misuse concern? And we'll get to the factors there um, that he'll use to consider in a moment. So, but it will be done as part of a rescheduling application. So once we get through the transition, and I'll talk about how we're going to manage that, um, it'll just be done as part of the rescheduling um, consultation and the consideration there so that it's all streamlined. There won't be a separate application. It'll be done as a, a package lot. And we don't need detailed applications from the sponsors. We can still have objections from stakeholders if they believe that there is a reason you know, that we may not be aware of. Um, and that'll be part of the scheduling consultation process that is already in place. So we're you know, trying to align with other mechanisms so we're not replicating consultation processes and, and effort across the board. And the advisory committee for medicine scheduling will, you know, they'll 
only be involved if the delegate really needs their input. If there's something that sort of thinks, well, maybe it could, maybe it can't, then he'll take it to them. But generally, we're hoping to you know, really streamline and make this an efficient process. So the factors that the delegate will consider, um, and remembering that you know, these are, is there a reason to not advertise this substance, in an overarching, is there a potential impact on public health? So is there potential for inappropriate use, abuse, diversion, that if we advertise it, that's going to happen? Um, are there potential interactions with substances that you know, patients may not be aware of, would need extra education, extra counselling from the pharmacist and those things? Additional risks associated with the dosage form. So some people have said, oh, if it's, if it's an injectable, it shouldn't be advertised. There's an argument for actually advertising some of the injectables. Um, and any other information that might be relevant. So there's, there was quite a bit of concern about um, sedating antihistamines, for example, and whether or not they're actually suitable for advertising. So they're the, the key factors that the delegate will turn his mind to when he's considering these things. And, you know, if, if he sort of goes, actually, there is a bit there, that could be a trigger to say, no, I'm not going to put it in Appendix H. Um, and there'll still be, a, you know, a role for the consultation through that process. Now, as part of all of this, there was, you know, concern about how we're going to control it. You know, we don't want all singing, all dancing types of advertisements, and how do we empower the pharmacist in this? So obviously, Schedule 3 medicines can't be obtained unless you talk to your pharmacist. Please don't go into the technical details about the pharmacist not actually being involved in that. We know, okay? But the law says, the requirements say that your pharmacist will dispense this to you, okay? So, you know, we're going to assume that the pharmacists are doing their job in this space and it's not the pharmacist's assistant or otherwise. And so the mandatory requirement that has to be included in all of these advertisements is ask your pharmacist, they must decide if this product is right for you. You can't, having seen this advertisement, go into the pharmacist and say, this is what I want. There is, there is an expectation that there will be that interaction between you and your pharmacist, okay? Um, so yeah, that'll be included in the advertising code, which the new version will be released on the 1st of July. The old version will still be, will be remade and still be in place until December, and this new requirement will be included in there as well. Transition, so currently, 19 of the 85 Schedule 3 substances are in Appendix H, hence the perception that it's banned from being advertised. We're going to do these in a bulk round, and I'm hopeful, fingers crossed, that the consultation paper for this will be on the website tomorrow. If not tomorrow, it'll be either Monday or Tuesday next week. So it is coming, okay? So you can all go and have your say on, on the substances. Um, and basically, we've got two lists. Substances that aren't in Appendix H that, you know, based on feedback we've had from stakeholder groups, they should go into Appendix H, substances that shouldn't, um, and a general reason why they shouldn't be included. And then once we've got all of that, the delegate will look at the feedback on that, either put them into Appendix H, and that first draft will be in Appendix H before the end of the year, um, decide not to put them in Appendix H, and we'll be publishing those negative decisions as well. He may reconsider, so if we said don't advertise it, and then it, there's support for it to be advertised, we'll go back for another round of consultation or we may even take it to ACMS for them to have their say. And that is all. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jonathan Penham from the University... No, that's incorrect, sorry. The University of Sydney, yes? Sorry. Don't kick me out yet. Not yet. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Um, it's a bit of a different flavour, looking into the, some US issues particularly looking over in Ohio and the use of opioids in emergency and acute care facilities. So I did a bit of 
research over there for my postdoc fellowship, but now at the University of Sydney as an academic. And as a good academic, I get my research on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump told me there's an opioid crisis, national public health emergencies. That's the reason they're really big on looking at what's happening with the opioid use. Um, in particular, Ohio, where I was based, has the third highest rate of opioid overdose deaths in the US. So it's a really big problem for them, and they're really keen to do more research in it. Some stuff that they've implemented um, to help curb that problem is they've got some Ohio opioid prescribing guidelines. In 2012, they released it for the emergency departments. Then they've released one for chronic pain and now one for acute pain. They've also implemented what they call mandatory prescription drug monitoring programs. So that means that any opioid dispensed in a community pharmacy must be recorded for everyone to see. So no matter what healthcare profession you go to, you can see what opioids have had in the past. Um, it's a particular issue for doctor shopping. Interestingly, though, emergency departments are exempt from looking at, from needing to look at that, um, but everyone else has to review it, and all the pharmacies have to report into it. Um, gives you a bit of a background. So my aim was to really evaluate the guidelines for emergency departments, and that's just kind of what it looks like. They deliberately made it a one-pager, because no one in emergency has time for anything else. <laughs> Things to note was that they don't recommend um, prescriptions for chronic pain um, if the patient has either previously presented for the same presentation or they've received an opioid prescription from another provider within the last month, and they don't recommend giving opioids for more than three days. Those are two key points in there. So what we did is we phoned all the ED medical directors um, in, the, in the hospitals within Ohio. So we wanted the ED medical director from every hospital in Ohio to tell us what's going on with their opioids. If they weren't available, it's the next appropriate person, either deputy director, director, sometimes it might be nursing director or the pharmacist. Um, we then got their details and we mailed them out a survey and we gave them a $10 incentive, regardless if they did the survey or not. Um, we also sent that off to the CEO of the hospital telling them what we're doing. And then we did a reminder with emails and mail, um, so it's hard copy surveys and follow-up interviews at the very end to see if we can dig deeper in what the issues are. Um, one of the coolest things out of this for me is we got a 92% response rate. It just doesn't happen with survey research. Um, so that was shows you, one, how big of an issue this is, but then also having that CEO being knowing what's going on, the issue that has. Um, but as a whole... Most of the hospitals said, yep, we've got opioid prescribing guidelines, 75% of them, most of them based off the Ohio one, which was good. And they thought it was quite positive. They said, this really has increased our use of the prescription drug monitoring program. And 71% said it's reduced inappropriate opioid prescribing. Um, in regards to actual prescribing practices, we could just ask about their perception, what was happening in their department. I'm going to focus on chronic pain. But I've asked within the last month, um, what kind of things rarely happen? These are all the things that we didn't want to see happen, and so we're hoping that they were high numbers. So you can see things like IV pethidine um, rarely happen there. Replacement doses for opioid replacement therapies rarely happen. But the ones that are coming further down here is opioid prescriptions that for more than three days, so around 30% of them, it's happening a little bit more often. Um, and then patients who are presented with the same problem in the last month or received an opioid prescription within the last month. This is kind of getting to the 40, well, 63% happened rarely and 57% happened rarely. So there's quite a few hospitals that are struggling with those particular recommendations. With the interviews, things that came out was really organisational responsibility. Um, the emergency physicians were saying, you know, unless there's some sort of carrot or stick for this, it's very difficult to get the guidelines implemented at some facilities. And I'm talking about administrative support because the ED, ER doctors are on board with this. So these are people saying we want to do stuff, but currently we feel like our hands are tied. Um, this is a classic example of what they were saying. Someone put a placard at the sign-in area of the emergency department related to the principles in the guideline. 
um, but because of concerns from the hospital legal department, they'll force to take them down. They said, no, it's too risky. Too risky for us to tell patients why we're not giving them out. Um, in regards to the prescription drug monitoring program, I want to highlight that because it's not common or it's not mandatory in a lot of our states in Australia. And they went, look, this has really allowed us to have a different conversation about that information. The PDMP data has been very helpful to not only present to the patient, but their family members and others that might be involved. So they really enjoyed having that information. Um, but there's always a caveat. Technology doesn't improve everything. Um, there are so many fields, 12 fields, not keystrokes, but fields. These reports takes a lot of them, um, take a lot of time, and people will interrupt you. These need to be an autofill in a busy emergency department to speed up the process and take away human error. So if, if that's causing problems with clinical care, technology can also hinder the process, which we heard this morning. So as a whole, I just want to say that we really are putting a lot of effort into getting these guidelines and implementing them. Clinical inertia seems to be the main issue within the emergency department about maintaining current treatments, despite results for demanding change. Um, but as a whole, they just want to see more organisational responsibility and that the PDMPs are integrated into their workflow. So thank you very much. Our next presenter today is Nadine Hillcock, a public health pharmacist and PhD student at the University of Adelaide. Good morning. Actually, my surname's Hillock. <laughs> it's, a, it's a common... Um, yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> increasing antibiotic resistance is increasing the risk that patients may develop an infection that is not able to be treated with currently available registered um, products. The Special Access Scheme is legislated under the Therapeutic Goods Act and is a pathway for for prescribers to import and prescribe unapproved medicines in clinical scenarios where available registered products are not available, or appropriate, sorry. The aim of our study was to determine the extent that prescribers are reliant on unregistered antimicrobials in routine clinical practice. Um, the Therapeutic Guidelines Antibiotic is the um, specifically referred to in the National um, AMR strategy as the evidence-based guidelines that should be available for prescribers to support appropriate antibiotic prescri antimicrobial prescribing across Australia. We reviewed the therapeutic guidelines for all indications where the recommended treatment included an unregistered antimicrobial drug as a treatment option. For each of the unregistered drugs in the TG, we obtained data regarding the applications to access unregistered antimicrobials via the Special Access Scheme through a Freedom of Information request for the five-year period from May 2012 to April 2017. At the time of the study, there were two possible categories to access special, um, special access drugs, Category A life threat for life-threatening indications and Category B for essentially all applications that weren't Category A. And we analysed the monthly count data to identify any trends in the number of applications over a five-year period. Um, there are 21 unregistered antimicrobial drugs in the therapeutic guidelines as of um, July 2017, um, and they were listed for a total of 27 clinical indications. There were more than 24,000 applications for the 21 drugs over the five-year period, and 40% of them were... Um, um, classified as Category A, well, they were determined by the prescriber to be for life-threatening indications. 
Of the eight most frequently prescribed unregistered antimicrobials, seven showed an increasing trend in the number of applications. For example, between 2013 and 2016, the number of phosphomycin applications increased over 500%, clofazamine and pyrazinamide applications more than doubled, and levofloxacin were up by a quarter. It is essential that we ensure access to older, effective antimicrobials, especially given the lack of new antibiotics being marketed and increasing resistance to currently registered options. For most of the unregistered antimicrobials, the market is small, but the clinical need is high with potentially fatal outcomes without treatment. There are risks associated with using unregistered products in clinical practice, particularly the risk that access to a quality product is not possible. And there is no obligation for manufacturers to supply unregistered products. However, there's a fine balance between access and excess, which has been highlighted with the recent registration of phosphomycin. Um, the special access scheme may be inadvertently acting as a stewardship tool preventing excess. Oral phosphomycin was registered in September last year for the treatment of uncomplicated urinary tract infections. And despite the registered indication being quite broad, it should be reserved for infections caused by multi-resistant uh, um, pathogens. Once registered, however, there's no legislative barrier to prevent direct marketing to GPs. And because it's an old drug, it's relatively cheap and prices less of a barrier to patients. So all these factors could potentially lead to an increase in inappropriate prescribing. There are no easy solutions to the increasing reliance on unregistered products. We need to ensure a viable regulatory pathway for both new and older antimicrobials, but balance that with mechanisms to prevent overprescribing. Since this study, a third uh, special access category has been introduced, which currently includes 11 antimicrobial drugs. It is a notification pathway for unregistered products that are deemed to have um, established history of use. Category C speeds up special access approval, but we need to address the underlying reasons why so many antimicrobials are unregistered in Australia. Those reasons are largely economic ones, often a small market and low financial return. However, it's also difficult for manufacturers to collect evidence required for registration when patient populations are small and clinical conditions are acute and potentially life-threatening. We cannot force companies to supply, we need to provide incentives. So we need to address why we are collecting the data that we are currently collecting with SAS applications. Could we have the special access scheme work for us to collect better data for small patient populations to inform regulatory bodies both here and overseas? Real world registries are needed for low volume products, especially for treatment of life-threatening indications. The special access scheme could potentially use to collect data um, ideally electronically, but not only the clinical indication, which is collected now, but the specific pathogen, what, um, what drugs that pathogen is resistant to, and if the outcome, importantly, if the outcome was a clinical cure. This data would be invaluable to manufacturers, prescribers, and regulatory bodies here and overseas. Thank you. Our next presenter today is Bonnie Parkinson, a Senior Research Fellow at Macquarie University Centre for the Health Economy. Thank you. Um, I think this presentation follows on very well from Rebecca's presentation, actually. So I think the first couple of slides might be telling you stuff you already know. Um, 
So uh, in Australia, as you probably all know, the poison standard sets out the degree of control over the availability of medicines to the public. Um, for most new medicines, when they're first um, registered, uh, patients require a prescription. So this is Schedule 4 or Schedule 8. Um, but later, they might be switched or down-scheduled um, to behind-the-counter or over-the-counter. Uh, in making these decisions, the committee of the TGA largely focuses on patient risk when making these decisions. So they really focus on things like uh, the risk of adverse events, delayed diagnosis or inaccurate diagnosis, inappropriate use and the need for advice. However, there are benefits to listing a medicine on a lower schedule that might not be considered or, or they are considered but they're given less importance. In particular, providing, uh, listing it on a lower schedule will reduce barriers to treatment. This may result in uh, reduced to time to symptom relief, increased treatment rates, increased adherence, or alternatively just change the types of treatments used from so less effective treatments to more effective treatments, or vice versa. As a result, quality of life might increase, disease onset might decrease, and same with disease progression. And this will result in uh, savings in terms of healthcare resource use, so GP, uh, GP visits, hospitalizations, tests. And ultimately, these resources could be used to treat other patients, because as we know, we only have limited resources within our healthcare system. So, as Rebecca mentioned, there has been an external review of medicines um, and medical Medical Devices Regulation 2015, and Recommendation 11 <laughs> recommended a formal risk-benefit methodology to assess scheduling applications. So our idea was to develop an economic framework, which is another form of a risk-benefit analysis, to help inform scheduling decisions. And the, um, the aim of the project was to not only develop this framework, but to also demonstrate the framework using two case studies. And I'm going to talk about the second case study in this presentation, downscheduling the oral contraceptive pill. So the framework is generally based on best practice guidelines for um, uh, health technology assessment around the world. And so, for example, it's very similar to the current PBAC guidelines for deciding whether or not to uh, fund a, a medicine. But there's some adjustment required. Um, in particular, it needs to consider how patients and pharmacists might behave differently. You don't necessarily need that in HTA because they get the drug or they don't get the drug. So, so Patient and pharmacist behaviour is really quite important in trying to work out and how to estimate how that would change. In terms of our case study, we looked at, um, uh, focused on sexually active women at risk of pregnancy, ages 15 to 50 years old. Um, we compared oral contraceptive pill available um, pharmacist only, so that's schedule three, compared to remaining on prescription only. From the perspective of the Australian healthcare system, over a time frame of 35 years. We developed quite a complex economic model um, uh, which incorporated evidence from a variety of different sources and that might include databases that we had access to in Australia, meta-analyses um, or epidemiologies from um, epidemiology studies from overseas um, and so on. Uh, we started off with the point of sexual debut for women and then we followed them through a variety of different types of uh, contraceptive uh, methods they might use. They might switch between these methods and combinations of these methods as well, as well as not using contraception um, and trying to conceive. Um, and then we looked at also when they became pregnant and, and what, what happens after they got pregnant and, and what they might change, um, their decisions might change with regards to the contraception. 
Most importantly, we considered a wide range of adverse events. Um, so venous thromboembolism, depression, myocardial infarction, and stroke. We also considered sexually transmitted diseases because it might affect women's uh, use of condoms. Um, and we also considered the adverse of, or the results of pregnancy outcomes. So birth, uh, miscarriage, stillbirth, abortion, and ectopic pregnancy. Overall, what we found was there was a reduction in the number of women using no contraception or less effective methods, such as like the rhythm method, um, but also resulted in fewer women using condoms and, and long-acting um, reversible oral contraceptives, sorry, long-acting reversible contraceptives. As a result, this re reduced adverse events relating to pregnancy, but it increased adverse events relating to oral contraceptives and also transmitted diseases. But overall, as a whole, when we combine all the evidence together, we found that downscheduling was more effective and cost-saving. However, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of um, the risk of pregnancy when not using contraception and not trying to conceive. We basically couldn't find any evidence of this in, in, the, um, in the literature. So, in, so just in summary, how can economic evaluation help these, making these scheduling decisions? So it acknowledges the fact that it's not possible to conduct a randomised control trial to explore the impact of downscheduling on health outcomes. Yeah? So what economic, um, what economic modelling can do is can help synthesise data from a variety of different sources, um, which would enable um, consideration of a broad range of both benefits and risks, and also estimate the, the total impact on health outcomes and resource use. It can, um, what it can, economic evaluation can do is help combine all those different types of health outcomes into a single measure, quality adjusted life years, and this is a measure that is um, the preferred measure by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee and a variety of other different um, decision-making bodies around the world, such as the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence in, in the UK, or NICE. And sensitivity analysis can help identify areas needing further research, but also look at the impact of different regulatory scenarios, such as, for example, requiring patients to complete a, a patient screening tool beforehand, or what happens if we just restricted it to these, this age of women, for example, versus a, a broader age. So these are my final thoughts. So we're not saying that economic evaluation approach should replace the current approach, but what we, say, what we are saying is that it should be part of the broader evidence considered by the regulatory authority. Um, and, and this includes you know, expected impact of health um, on health, the available evidence, who will be affected in the role of practitioners and pharmacists. Thank you. Our last presenter today is Jared Brown from the New South Wales Poisons Information Centre. Thank you. So uh, today I want to talk about something that uh, is, I've been quite passionate and uh, interested in over the last eight years and have previously presented on uh, at NMS. But uh, I wanted to uh, inform you of kind of an update in terms of what's happening in terms of the group home situation, in terms of medication handling, because it's not one that gets a lot of attention. Um, so first I want to explain, because a lot of people don't actually know the term group home. Uh, so it's a small community-based dwelling for, uh, that provides kind of support for uh, clients with an intellectual disability generally. And the services provided in that home are generally from a non-registered health professional. So they're known as residential support workers. And they generally have only have undertaken a very small, short course in uh, training around the medication administration aspect and they rely on the uh, pharmacy pact uh, 
descent aids. So poison centres are receiving large numbers of calls from support workers in these group homes, uh, and we're seeing that the industry is being increasingly privatised over the last few years. We've tried to work with a range of different stakeholders in this area and uh, have had mixed results. Uh, New South Wales seems to have had the most increase in, uh, in calls relating to uh, individuals in group homes. And we find uh, when there are policies in place in these group homes, these group homes uh, or the organisations that run these group homes uh, have written these policies without any consultation with the actual uh, telephone support services that they uh, indicate who should be contacted. So the aims of this were to characterise the range of calls that our poison centre gets from group homes and to, um, to provide some insight into where there may be some opportunities to work with these facilities to improve medication handling. So as background, we're the largest poison centre in Australia. This study will focus on the New South Wales aspect, but we do take calls from around Australia, um, particularly in the after hours period where that happens. Uh, there is a national number, as you'll all know, and remembering our core business is dealing with kind of accidental uh, poisoning, dosing errors and deliberate self-poisoning and kind of recreational uh, abuse, misuse of medication exposures. Um, medication information is on our fringe of because we're 24-7 and we're staffed by pharmacists that we do tend to get a lot of calls like that. So nationally, 21,000 calls per year uh, to poison centres around uh, drug information requests. So I've looked at back from the earlier study I did back in 2008 uh, and compared to what's happening in 2017 uh, for calls from, from a group home setting. So it's a little bit confusing at first when we look at this, but the main thing to note is that over that time, the number of calls that we, we get in as a whole from New South Wales has actually decreased from about 80,000 down to 65,000, and that's mostly a drop in community-based calls. Um, but what we've seen is a, a rise from about 2,000 calls back then to 4,700 calls per year from these group homes in New South Wales alone. And just to let you know when it's happening, so it's mainly at breakfast and dinner time, the common dosing times for all medications, and that's when either medication uh, errors uh, happen in the term of giving the uh, medication to the wrong client or in uh, picking up that the last dose time wasn't given. So they're the kind of times when medications are handled, so that's when kind of errors tend to be detected and hence generate calls. So when we look at the actual rundown of what the most frequent call types that we get are, we see that missed medications have, both back in 2008 and now in 2017, um, are still our most frequent call type that, that we do get. Um, and in particular, it's important to also note that medications given at the incorrect time uh, and medications given to the wrong person uh, are quite frequent uh, events. Although they technically have dropped uh, in terms of medications given to the wrong person, over that time frame, the actual, because the, in the, the number of cases per year uh, has gone up so much, we actually are still seeing a, a similar number of those events happening. And they can be quite uh, dangerous medications involved where there might be a naive patient receiving uh, an opioid or a range of different drugs that, uh, that, that can end up in hospitalisation. Out of interest, the act so the calls that poison centres kind of concentrate on and, and uh, want to provide emergency advice is around medications given at the wrong time and, um, and kind of dosing errors where they're given in close proximity or to the wrong person. 
uh, or accidental poisoning, which is all the way down here. The other kind of questions are really on our fringe uh, and not something that necessarily requires an urgent response, um, but there is only one national number for, for this kind of advice that's being utilised. To add to that is the complexity of the medication regimens. So this is a case I had this week, uh, because we're short staffed this week and I'm handling calls. Um, so you actually see the kind of number of medications that patients are on, two set packs, and you're trying to take this history over the phone, never heard of this patient before, and I need to, our average call handling time is three minutes. These calls don't take that, they take more like 10 minutes because the history is so complex. And in this case, it was really challenging to take down the history. I had to actually get them to take a photo to send me the pack so I could try and work out what the actual error was. And um, it was different to what they had told me over the phone. So it was important. I did get a photo of the pack. Um, but it's, it's something just to appreciate the complexity of the regimens that these patients are on. And the medications involved are, are generally quite sedating medications. We see valproate and antipsychotics as the most frequent uh, uh, drugs involved in medication errors. And luckily vitamin D is up there because that's the one when they say that that's what they've missed. I'm like, well, that's a simple answer. <laughs> and in the scheme of things, it's not a large number, but in terms of uh, dosing errors resulting in hospitalisation, um, 41 people uh, from, from the calls that we received in 2017 required uh, emergency transport to hospital because of the administration error. So just to quickly kind of go over the, the, the issues, I think that we've seen frequent enough errors and we're only, we're not all the cases that are happening around the Australia. We need uh, better support systems for these uh, workers, uh, whether it be a national hotline or enhancement for a longer extended hour service for their local pharmacy and GP to be able to answer these queries, particularly at those critical dosing times around breakfast and dinner and that we're seeing more than half of the call types that we're getting are not ones that require urgent responses from, from our poison specialists. And just to finish up with the solutions, look, the policies of what's driving the, the activity, I think that's where we're trying to get um, to, to raise that there need to be improved policies and procedures in place to be able to handle these kind of urgent versus non-urgent uh, errors, and that uh, better training and audit of these errors will ultimately be able to improve medication safety in the community. So I've preempted some questions because really at the end of the day, poison centres, we're taking the calls, we can deal with them to a limited extent, but ultimately we need some stakeholders out there and partners that can really help drive this to improve medication safety in the community in these group homes. So thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. Uh, I took a couple of themes from our presentations today, and I think you all uh, presented well on our theme of evolving systems and reimagining policies. Um, a consistent feeling I got is that we work and live and uh, are admitted as patients and treated as consumers in a complex and fragmented healthcare system, uh, and that we do need to change that system. Sometimes that might be embracing that complexity and connecting and collaborating across the complexity. In other situations, it might be reducing the complexity, um, streamlining, simplifying. Um, either way, it can be difficult to do that change to overcome the inertia of the current systems. And there were several uh, proposals discussed today and uh, things already happening that are trying to overcome that inertia. And the other big topic point was around policies on access. We could either improve access, be that timely access, early supply, uh, increasing consumers' awareness and access to medicines, 
um, or ensuring that supply is actually available when you need that access, to restricting access. And both approaches have risks and benefits and those need to be considered. That's a balancing act. I think the ultimate goal in all the discussions is that we want to make sure that we have the right medicine available and that the right medicine is given to the right patient at the right time for better health outcomes. So thank you everyone.